Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Eric Connor, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. Today we have noted film critic Peter Rayner. He is the critic for the Christian Science Monitor. He's also written for The New Yorker, for LA Times, and a lot of other publications. And he has been a finalist for a Pulitzer. And if that's not enough for you, he is also the author of the book, Rainer on Film. 30 Years of Film Writing in a Turbulent and Transformative Era is available for sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the other booksellers online. So thank you so much for coming, Peter Rainer. Thanks, Eric. One thing you had talked with me about before is, is this idea of, in essence, we all think we know what a critic does. Because we read their stuff, like, oh, they see a movie, they write a review, but obviously there's more to it than that. So I was wondering if you could talk about maybe your typical day. Uh, Yeah, well, a day in the life. It does vary, but I would say on average, uh, if we're not talking holiday seasons or, you know, run up to awards, Oscars, or festivals, I guess I see at least a movie a day, more often than not in theaters, but sometimes, you know, in home viewing situations. The way I find out if a film is opening is you go on various sites to see what the schedule is of openings, Mm -hmm. you know, often out of date almost immediately. The various movie companies and publicists will send invites to me, now almost exclusively uh, online invites, saying you and a guest are invited to so-and-so movie. And a lot of the smaller independent foreign films, uh, documentaries and so forth, they often screen them months in advance, sometimes key to when the so-called talent is in town. Studio pictures increasingly either aren't ready until pretty close to opening date, which is generally on a Friday, or they don't want you to see them all that early for bad word of mouth or whatever. The embargo until... Yeah, the embargo thing is a fairly recent development. (laughs) One minute before it comes out, right? Yeah, they say, you know, 12.01 a.m., the Wednesday before the Friday opening, the embargo is lifted and so forth. My reviews generally come out day and date with the opening, so I'm not really looking to break embargoes anyway. Right. But the embargo extends even to blogs and just sort of online commentary of any kind, Although I notice it doesn't seem to extend to the publicist contacting you the day after the screening to ask you what you think. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to have been embargoed. <laughs> uh, and my uh, response is always, you know, I um, think it's somewhere between Creature from the Black Lagoon and Citizen Kane. But you know, <laughs> beyond that, I'm contractually unable to answer that question, <laughs> which is sort of vaguely true. I mean, I don't like to feel like I'm part of the PR system. Right. But anyway, so then I show up at the screening and I usually take notes with a pen and pad, which I can't read afterwards, but mm-hmm. it's kind of useful. You, you don't have like one of those little lit up pens? Like... No, I, I probably should get one. Th- that used to be more common than it is. Now people go in with their computers. Mm-hmm. The lighted pen thing I always thought was kind of obnoxious, not to mention, you know, you're sitting next to someone and the light keeps clicking on right, the, right, right. and you say to yourself, well, what great insight did I miss? You know, I mean, <laughs> the light came on. The man with the pen what knows. Are they, right. Yeah. What are they seeing that I didn't see? Well, though, probably less obnoxious than a monitor, like an actual computer screen yeah. illuminating half the theater. Yeah. Uh, you know, people say, gee, you're so lucky you're a critic. You can go to these screenings and there aren't all these people who are like texting and talking around you. And I say, are you kidding? It's worse right. in some ways. I mean, a lot of critics, if, if they're bored by a movie or they're making deals or they're doing whatever they're doing during a screening, it, it's just as bad. I mean, that personally kind of drives me up the wall. Yeah, when you're at an advanced screening, too, not everyone in there is going to be a critic, right? I mean, it's also sometimes like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know who these people are. Like, they 
try to fill those seats sometimes. Like, yeah, you know, you're you're in there with uh, you never know regular citizens. Yeah, too, no, you the, know? the dentist of the of the gaffer. You know, I mean, they yeah, just yeah, yeah. bring all these people in there, especially for the big ones. But okay, so then I so I take notes, and then I uh, I generally don't review a movie like right after I've seen it, unless for deadline purposes I have right, to right, do right. that. If I'm at a festival like Toronto, where I'll see maybe four movies a day sometimes or more, a lot of those movies don't open for many months or a year or more later. Mm-hmm. So I'll do sort of an overview of the festival, but I'm not going to get specific or write full take reviews on anything. Oh, oh so uh, you don't, because I know sometimes like... Um, well, the trades do that. Yeah, yeah the trades yeah. will do reviews when they're at the festivals. But, right. But like Christian Science Monitor and NPR, like you don't... No, not really. And part of the reason for that, I think, I mean, it's it's good that... I mean, the trades are sort of, they're the trades, so I guess they, they have to be on record as saying something about the film at the time that it opens. But if I were to review a movie, a full-length review of a movie that's in the Toronto Festival that then opens in December, mm-hmm. you can't re-review it. So you're reviewing a movie that won't be released for several months. Right, right. Just from the filmmaker's point of view, if you're not going to run the review again in December, then they've lost whatever you said about the movie because it, it ran too early. Now, is there a way you can, let's say you saw something at Toronto and you think it's great and maybe it's like a sort of a smaller prestige pick. Is there something you could do to help build buzz for it? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, when I do the overview, I single out in critical terms, what I thought of many of the movies. It's not Mm -hmm. like I just sort of say what's there and that's it. You know, if if there's a really great movie or if I discover something or whatever, absolutely. That's the main purpose of why I'm there, actually. But I'm not going to do a separate long review. So I'll see a movie, I'll write it up based on my notes and recollections and whatnot. And I try to keep the films in my mind strongly enough so I don't have to see it again. I don't really like seeing movies twice within a a fairly short time frame, Mm -hmm. at least. I find that I don't get that much out of it the second time because I'm already kind of bringing to it what I saw the first time. Sure. Uh, you know, on the other hand, there are almost by definition a great movie or, or a difficult or innovative movie is not something you're likely to pick up altogether on a first viewing. But, you know, I see 250-something movies a year. Yeah, you, you don't it's, have much time to... Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult for me to go back and look at something right. again, even if I want to, which which on occasion I do. And eventually I will, but, you know, after the review's out and all... The big change for me as a critic is that when I first started out in the 70s, mid-70s, there were maybe six or seven movies maximum that opened in a given week. Mm -hmm. Now, not just because of streaming and whatnot, but also there are often 20-plus movies per week that play in theaters. Right, and you have such a wide range beyond just, like, different platforms. Yeah, I mean, sometimes films, a lot of the the lower-end movies that, that are part of that 20 are films that for contractual reasons right, they have to they have to show it you know theatrically to get a better sale on the screaming right. or whatever but, but yeah the, there's so many movies where it's like day and date where they're on on demand or netflix right. or well more on demand but they might be in a handful of theaters that same day yeah i mean a lot of vod movies are before the theatrical opening yeah you know and then there's the whole issue with netflix and whatnot actually where, what are your thoughts on that with i, I know there's been such a blowback against netflix Films playing the festivals. Right. I sort of disagree. I think that Netflix movies should be in the mix if they have a theatrical release. Mm -hmm. This argument that Spielberg and others have made that a TV movie is, in the end, a TV movie, you know, it doesn't quite hold water because 
there are a lot of movies that aren't particularly well designed for the big screen either. Right. You know, they're just, that's the way they were made Smaller and they could look, and... look just as at home on a TV screen as anywhere else. But I mean, it is a little sneaky to essentially make a TV movie that you play in the theaters mm -hmm. to boost the Netflix viewership and get awards. But, you know, what else is new? I mean, there's always a scam. Sure. Also, I think even if you agree that these films should not be part of the awards mix, I just think it's a losing battle. You know, I, I, I don't think that you can rule out so much product that is coming out. You know, a corollary argument was when the OJ uh, Made in America documentary, which was ESPN. Right. They showed it in theaters either just before or day and date with the initial TV airing. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was the best film of the year, yeah. of that year. I thought it was an extraordinary film, absolutely extraordinary. And it won the Oscar for Best Documentary, yeah. at which point the documentary committee said, we're not doing this anymore. The argument there was that on the part of other documentarians, you know, mm -hmm. Ava DuVernay had a, a strong socially conscious documentary that year. That Wait, was uh, the 13, was that? Yeah. So their argument was, you know, OJ is a great film. Congratulations. You know, but if I'd had eight hours at my disposal to make my movie it would have been significantly more powerful. I, you know, That argument says that longer is better by definition. Yeah, well, it's funny, it's, it's like the opposite of the argument. Remember when Emmys started really recognizing HBO shows like The Sopranos and, yeah. and, and the networks were like, well, if we only had to do 12 episodes a season, we would make ours better. Right. And I don't know how much water that holds, yeah. that argument. No. It's like blaming like the fact that you have right. more money, more time, more staff, and like, but we can't create more good product. You know, most writers will tell you, you know, journalists uh, and critics that if you have like two months lead time to write a review, it doesn't mean that you're going to write a better review right, than, right, right. than when you're on a tight deadline. Sometimes that forces you to really be more creative and come up with stuff right. on the spot that, you know, the sloth would erase uh, otherwise. So it's complicated. You know, Netflix, when this movie Okja came out about the pig, and so, so that was sort of their big push, at least for critics and for awards, to position themselves as a movie studio, sort of an odd movie to be using as a test case. Right. You know, and, and the experiment didn't quite work on that level. Some people liked the film more than others. But I think they're just going to keep trying to do it. You know, a lot of TV shows going back, you know, a lot of Columbo's and, and, you know, Spielberg's Duel, they were all shown theatrically as feature films in Europe. But we're uh, on TV here. We're on TV yeah. here. Yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, Spielberg's first real massive movie that kind of put him over. Yeah, you Duel. Know, the top right? Duel. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, that was a TV movie here. Absolutely. It was a universal TV movie. And, I mean, it aged pretty well in that. It, it, yeah. As TV movies go, it looks like a heck of a cinematic TV movie, especially for that time. Right. I mean, I would think that that probably works better. I've never seen it on a big screen, yeah, but, but I would think that it's got to come across better on a big screen. Right. And if you haven't seen yeah. Duel, it's the movie that got him Jaws. And it's yeah. so, I mean, technically remarkable what he pulls off with it's, what I imagine is a yeah. rather small budget. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a pretty incredible film. It, it, it's kind of like Jaws, only a giant truck instead yeah, of a shark. instead of a shark. <laughs> and I think that's the thing, too. It's like a lot of these stories won't get out otherwise. Feel yeah, like... it's, it, if it plays in a theater, I think it should qualify. Yeah. Uh, however it got there. Um, and, right. I mean, you have to make some kind of rules. Otherwise, you know, you're going to start, you know, Game of Thrones, best picture of the year. <laughs> you know, you have to... 
make some distinctions. It might it actually might pick up a lot of the technical awards. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, actually, um, before you mentioned some of the uh, kind of unusual choices your critics group made, but the movie Brazil had kind of a legendary yeah. troubled journey. And if I remember correctly, I think the L.A. critics had named it like the best picture of the year. Yeah, there's a very interesting story behind yeah. that. And, um, and were you part of that? Yes. Like, oh, great. Do yeah. tell. Uh, I mean, I like the movie a lot. I, I don't think it was my best film of the year, but I wasn't dissatisfied that it yeah. won. And particularly given the circumstances, I thought it was a great. What happened was Terry Gilliam had made Brazil for Universal. Mm-hmm. And Sid Sheinberg, who was the head of Universal, yeah. didn't like the movie. <laughs> no, he and, did not. <laughs> uh, and he just kind of sat on it for a long time. And Gilliam, who is not a shrinking violet, was doing everything he could to make this film happen. Took out a full page ad in the trade saying, you know, dear Sid Scheinberg, when are you going to release my movie Brazil? Mm-hmm. And then Scheinberg had people come in and do their own cut of the film. They really, by all accounts, messed it up. And that was what they were going to release. And contractually, I guess they had the right to do that. So Gilliam knew one of the critics who was at the L.A. Times at that point, Jack Matthews. They arranged a clandestine screening for the L.A. critics mm-hmm. of Gilliam's cut of Brazil, which technically was illegal. So the critics saw this movie. They said, this is a great movie. So now we're voting that day for the year-end awards, and Brazil wins Best Picture, Gilliam's Cut of Brazil. So Scheinberg had no choice but to release Gilliam's Cut right. after that. It was activist criticism at its finest. <laughs> you know, I mean, you never get into It was into a protest this. vote. Yeah, I mean, that's how that came about. And, and Gilliam was, you know, forever grateful because uh, there's a very good chance that his, certainly theatrically at that time, his film had never been released. Right. The uh, Sergio Leone movie, Once Upon a Time in America, yeah, yeah, yeah. is a classic example of a film that was released in a butchered version. I think 40 minutes were taken out of it. The I time think I'm going to say even more than that. I think it might have been an hour and change might have. Wow. Like, yeah, because yeah. the full cut's close to four hours. It, yeah, I mean, Leone's cut that eventually was shown yeah. is, is a terrific movie and considerably longer and better and, and more complicated in, in, in terms of the editing and whatnot. Yeah, very and, poetic, the yeah, way it transitions it, in and out of scenes. But his movie was originally hacked up by uh, some guy that cut trailers in New York, and that's what was shown. And a lot of critics, they saw both versions. And I remember, I think it was Kale or someone said, you know, I, I've never seen a worse butchering job than was done to this movie. Um, I, I was wondering, you know, we were talking before about some of these movies we like that they don't quite come together as much, right. and yet we still have a kind of a soft spot in our heart for them. Guilty pleasures. Right. Even that term might be a bit of a misnomer because if you like it, why should you be guilty? Right. Um, I was wondering if there are some films in your uh, vast collection that maybe hold a special place for you, right. but didn't hold a special place for pretty much any critics. Mm-hmm. Well, the most recent example is the movie Mother, mm-hmm. Darren Aronofsky's film, which I normally don't like his movies, and most people do. Mother, which I saw in Toronto, was loathed by my colleagues, almost excluded. It didn't make a dime. People hated it. It was loathed. I thought it was a really fascinating movie. It goes off the rails completely the last 15 minutes or so. But, you know, I won't bother to give my defense to the jury. But it was... (laughs) And and I don't feel guilty about it. I just feel besieged when I say it to people. I said, really? (laughs) You like that film? Yes, and I didn't like Black Swan, and I didn't like blah, blah, blah. I like smart, dumb comedies a lot. I seem to be more tolerant 
just like I, you know, like bad stand-up sometimes I enjoy mm-hmm. watching too. But, you know, Dumb and Dumber, when New Line, they had a trailer for it, but they weren't going to press screen it. And I thought, this looks really funny. Mm-hmm. What's the problem? You know, it, bad reviews aren't going to have any effect on this movie. And good reviews will bring people in who would not normally see it. And it's really funny. So they did press screen it. I just kept after him. Mm-hmm. I said, what do you have to lose? So in that vein, um, I go every year to the Alex Theater in uh, Glendale for mm-hmm. the Three Stooges marathon that they have. And now I have to go. Well, yeah. And your kids would. I mean, it's kids love that stuff. It's, uh, you know, don't try this at home. But I think, <laughs> you know, the Three Stooges is sort of the, the essence of comedy, right? You know, it's just about poking uh, and bashing. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, I you know, Curly is... Comic genius. Jerome Horowitz, right? Yeah. The right. artist formerly known as Jerome Horowitz. Yeah, they were... Uh, the larger thing here is that I think that if you really like something, whether you're a critic or, uh, you know, just an audience member, you know, you should go with it. This idea that there's something guilty about liking something, there may be a very good reason why you do like something. Sure. It's more important to be ostentatiously wrong <laughs> than self-censoring yourself to the point where you, right. you, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think Mark Twain said, taste never should be defended. I'm paraphrasing yeah. him. And Sheryl Crow said, if it makes you happy, it can't be so bad. And I, I agree with both. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do think, you know, as a critic, there are some types of films that I might enjoy, even though I know they're not good movies. And mm-hmm. as long as I'm upfront about that, you know, it's okay to enjoy these movies, but don't enjoy them as something that they weren't meant to be or aren't. You'll say that in your review, like upfront then, almost yeah. like fair warning. I enjoy this kind of thing. Well, I'll say, you know, I, I enjoy this kind of stuff because it's kind of kitsch, probably in ways that the filmmakers did not intend. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the films are good in ways that are intended to be good. Mm-hmm. There's some parts of Towering Inferno, as I recall, for many years, that are first rate for what it's trying to do. I was wondering then, so one thing that's definitely happened is over the years, the phrase everybody's a critic has taken on grand new proportions because you yeah. go on YouTube, that's where a lot of people are getting their reviews. And sometimes, like, you know, they can go from crass to comical, you know, hilariously crude but also really astute. Yet at the same time, some of these are just 15-year-old kids with Facebook Live. What are your thoughts on mm. sort of that end of the critic sphere? Uh, you know, the, the idea of really, truly, because of the internet, people are getting their sort of critical takes from those who really don't even have a writing background. Yeah, well, I mean, what you're describing impinges on the professional life and careers of actual working critics because Mm -hmm. there's less and less incentive for publications to go with critics when there's this whole gabble of voices out there. I don't know. I think there's nothing wrong with being, quote, elitist and saying that not everyone is a critic in the sense that not Mm -hmm. everyone brings to the fore the kinds of ideas and whatnot that is what criticism is all about. You know, I'm not putting down blogs. I myself yeah. not really a social media person, but you know, I'm past the point where I think that if you have a blog that you have nothing to say or you're mm-hmm. just blathering, you know, there are a lot of fine critics now who write exclusively on the web for various publications. You know, my own publication is primarily online now. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think that by definition if you're a blogger, you're not a quote critic, but I mm-hmm. do think that the odds are, are highly stacked <laughs> against you because people think that, you know, criticism is not just opinionating. That's the thing. Everyone says, well, if I just, that's, it's just my opinion. It's as good as your opinion. What makes you any better than me? Well, 
that's one way to look at it. But the thing is, speaking as a writer, I think you have to be able to be a writer, a real writer, to be a critic. I don't mm-hmm. think there's just opinionating is what it's all about. Because in the end, everything that I say about a film could probably be reduced to a couple of sentences on a blog and convey essentially the same message. Mm-hmm. You know, like the acting, didn't like the direction, the story was uh, sucked etc. You know, it's how you say it and the arguments that you deliver in the course of the criticism to support what you're saying that makes a criticism. Not to mention that movies are kind of the, I mean, they encompass so many different things, not only all of the other arts, but what's going on in society, a reflection of society. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that to be a critic, you have to have a comprehensive knowledge of the history of film and have right. seen all the great movies. It can't hurt, but I don't think that just, you know, if someone says, well, I'm a critic because I've seen 4,000 movies, no. Some of the most interesting articles I've read on film have been by people who are not professional critics, who are often in the English and American lit departments or mm-hmm. sociology or philosophy, you know, people who bring a whole other thing to the table. Right. That is much more interesting in many ways than the, you know, the so-called professional critic who is too often insulated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, the great critics have been the ones who have covered the waterfront and broadened the spread and talked about films in much larger ways while never forgetting the fact that the critic is first and foremost a member of the audience. One thing you're saying that, that I think is great is, you know, the fact is it's not so much about who's giving their review. It's like, are they informed or not? Can they shine some light on the review? Reading Roger Ebert's longer reviews when I was young, I remember they didn't always have stars or thumbs up, thumbs down. And New York Times still doesn't do that. You know, I think a lot of really reputable publications they invite you to read the whole thing because that doesn't sum it up for you. Right. Well, I mean, it varies in micro, you know, at the monitor in some of its iterations now, I do have grades, which, you know, if, if I had a choice, I probably wouldn't go with. But, you know, nevertheless, it is a way for people to at least latch on to what your overall opinion is and maybe drive them to read the full review. Yeah. Kind of puts in a frame at least. <clears throat> yeah, or not. You know, in, in a sense, all reviews have implicit grades. You know, where it gets a little nutty is like Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes, right. where they, they sometimes will contact you. You know, that, that review read like a B minus, but you gave it a B plus. It's like, well, yeah, please. Like, like they're grading your grading, basically. Yeah, right. You see, the thing is, true criticism, I think, is not about the value judgment in the end. In other words, you can read a critic and disagree with everything he or she is saying, and still think that it's 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 an exhilarating read, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, I disagree with everything you said, but I really enjoyed reading you. That's, to me, a better compliment than someone that comes over to you and says, I loved everything you said about that movie because I agreed with everything, mm-hmm. you know? It's not the value judgment, it's how you get to that judgment that I mm-hmm. think makes for a critic. Well, has it changed your approach <clears throat> as a critic that initially when you started, people, you knew were reading the whole article or, you know, it was in a... a, yeah. in a uh, a brick-and-mortar newspaper, so right, to speak. Right. And now <clears throat> most of your audience is clicking. Yeah, I mean, it does... It. I mean, there are all kinds of ramifications. It's very easy on the Internet to just click around. And, uh, I mean, I myself have some difficulty in reading long articles still, you know, on right. an iPhone or a computer. But I know that for the next generation, that's not going to be an issue at all. Whether that means that there's going to be less extensive criticism by virtue of people's viewing habits on the internet, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I hope not. But I think 
It all comes down to what do you want from film criticism? If you just want value judgments, if you want to know what movie I should see on a Saturday night, that's a perfectly good rationale for reading a review and writing a review. Because in the end, a lot of reviews, I mean, I don't like reviews where they go on about everything and then you're like, yeah, but what did you think of the movie? (laughs) You know? I mean, I think that's part of it. And if you have no opinion or if you're mixed, uh, which is often the case, then that should be in there. That's generally how it is with with most movies, you know, that I write about. And, um, I don't like this notion that criticism is something, you know, that sort of comes down from on high. I don't see it so much anymore. It's partly because of the Internet. But it used to be that a lot of publishers and editors would say, you know, well, don't use the first person when you review. Really? But, you know, for me, criticism is, is very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're writing out of your own experience. You're writing out of who you are. And that, yeah. that's another thing. You have to connect, uh, certainly with movies, it's, you know, because movies have a way of really hitting you in places that you, you know, aren't defensed for. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very powerful medium mm-hmm. and it affects people in very powerful ways, which is why, you know, if you say you really hated a movie that someone loved, on the one hand, you can say, well, that's just the way it is. You like some films, I don't. But, you know, a lot of people take these personally. And I can understand that. If you really love some movie and someone says, ah, it's a terrible movie, Worst movie ever. Yeah, I mean, there's a way in which, you you know, you're going to take that personally because yeah. films are very personal medium. It's important to put all this in perspective and realize that, that a critic is first and foremost a person, you know, who is reacting to what's up on the screen. And it's, it's, it's a very personal medium. And so writing about it, I think should also be a personal thing, sure. you know, not in the worst sense of, of, you know, the extreme bloggers who just, you know, like I said, opinionated about everything without backing anything up. You know, one of the things I've always really enjoyed about film criticism and and really, you know, criticism of the arts is it introduced me to movies I never would have seen otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so on that end, one thing about your book is that you found sort of room for these lesser known things. We we talked before about, you know, this sort of underseen gems. Right. But even, I I don't think we talked about this before, but one documentary you brought up that I, I wish more people knew about was the Stone Reader. Oh, yeah. yeah. I got a few of these, but a couple thoughts on Stone Reader. And, uh, You've seen it? Uh, I have, yeah, and, yeah. and I saw it a long time ago. But yeah, if you could talk about this like kind of little lesser-known documentary that sort of went under the radar of everyone. Yeah, it was a terrific little film. You know, the director had read or started to read a book by a writer named Dow Mossman, I believe his name was, uh, The Stones of Summer. Stones of Summer, yep. But the, the, he had written nothing since. So the whole movie sort of trying to track down this guy. Uh, yeah, it was a fascinating movie. I, in general, I love to discover films for other people to see. Uh I don't know that he's directed anything since. I, I mean, I, he, he worked do, on a lot of political documentaries. Yeah, I, I don't know if he did. Because yeah. I don't think he necessarily... Was a filmmaker. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. a documentarian, but he no. just... Right, he's not, not primarily known as being a filmmaker. That I have no problem with that either. I think there are a lot of people who discover film, and maybe they only make one or two movies, but they bring something new right. to the mix. Uh, and it's particularly true in documentaries. I always tell people when they go to a a film festival and they want to know what to see, of course, the program says everything's a masterpiece, so how do you decide? Uh, I would choose a documentary over a dramatic film, sight unseen, because documentaries are often made by people who who really care about the subject. They know they're not going to make much money on this film. You know, they, there's just more passion involved. Sure. In, and, and if nothing else, you probably learn something mm-hmm. that you might not have learned from a dramatic film about a particular subject. It might be your only chance to see it, too. That, so too. Some yeah. of those don't get distribution, and that's it. Right. 
you know, I have a whole section in my in my book, Rainer on Film, on documentaries. For me, Fred Wiseman is the greatest living American director of any kind with a body of work that's unequaled. He's made mm -hmm. 40-something movies. He's in the mid-80s, makes a movie a year. And his films are absolutely extraordinary. The, the early ones are more accessible because they're not so long. His films mm -hmm. tend to be rather long. You know, it goes to what makes a film great, I think, to, to explore the film in the process of making it in many ways, a luxury that not every filmmaker has of any stripe. You know, one of the filmmakers you mentioned, and I think it was in your auteur section, yeah. Richard Linkletter. I feel like he's sometimes not given the credit he deserves, even though I think critics like him. But in terms of a general, maybe the general population, like, doesn't gravitate to his films like they yeah. might some others. And he is one that, for me, and I don't know, maybe it's because I saw Before Sunrise, My Last Night in Europe, hmm. I've always just found his stuff, even his misfires, so personal and so unique, you know, even yeah. Boyhood, which got such a response. But he's yeah. been doing this for, he's, yeah, he's I mean, managed he's, to do this. Yeah, I'm not nuts about more recent, more conventional work that he's done. But he really is an extraordinary filmmaker who is incredibly versatile. Yeah. You know, Boyhood has a lot to recommend it. He did a film that hardly anyone saw called Me and Orson Welles. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I th was one of the best sort of coming of age in the theater, yeah, you know, Efron, a life in the right? theater. It's a terrific, terrific movie. And then there's, you know, School of Rock, which is a, a great, right. com very funny commercial film. Yeah, and still somehow personal. Yeah. You know, that one, I, I felt like he managed to go big without losing anything that makes him Richard Linkletter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's an extraordinary filmmaker, you know, incredibly self-prepossessing in person. But I think that humility kind of works his advantage as an artist because mm -hmm. he's not all over the place with you when he makes a movie. He, he works rather subtly, which is maybe one reason why he doesn't have a more widespread public acclaim because mm -hmm. he's not one of these directors who assaults you and, you know, jumps all over you. Look at this. Look at this. Mm -hmm. Like Tarantino or somebody. In some ways, he might be the exact opposite of Tarantino. Yeah, I mean, I, I like some of what Tarantino does also. Me but, very much so. Yeah, but, but I do think that, that there's room for yin and yang in that world. And Linklater, he, he works cheaply enough so that he can do these kinds of films on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I think you took a page from Robert Altman in that regard. Which is, it's yeah. funny, I was about to say, we got to talk about yeah, Robert yeah, Altman. Yeah. And I mean, one of the all-time greats who somehow never won an Oscar as Best Director. I think he got, a got honorary an honorary Oscar, one. yeah. Um, do you count those? Yes and no. <laughs> it's a little bit of a consolation I mean, it's, prize. It's, it's a great consolation prize, but it's outrageous that he never got any. Of yeah. course, that's true of Cary Grant. It's true of uh, yeah, the list is Charlie long. Chaplin, unless you count his uh, Limelight Oscar for the music. Right. Hitchcock. All of these guys. Kubrick, right? Kubrick didn't win uh, director. I don't think he ever got a no. Yeah. So, so he, he joins a, a healthy list of Press some of the Stare, best, I think some of the best filmmakers we ever had. Um, yeah. And, and performers. Keaton. Yeah, right. no, I mean, it's, it's it's almost a better, you know, it's a better right. club to be in than the one that... Uh, <laughs> Though I'm that, sure I'm sure winning an Oscar ain't a bad club either. But, no, um, no. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's someone, too, that he spanned decades, too. And it's kind of amazing that, in essence, like, his style didn't change. He well, managed, yes and no. Discuss that. Sure. So, yeah, we'll talk the yes and no of it. I mean, there's a long essay on him in my book, and I, I knew him somewhat over the years. I did probably his last interview for uh, the DGA magazine when he was in New York cutting Prairie Home Companion. Mm -hmm. He used to have a, his own movie company in Westwood called Lionsgate, no relation to the current company. Mm -hmm. And he would invite people there sometimes to see rough cuts and stuff. It was a little awkward and, you know, stopped <laughs> doing it after a while. 
But um, well, awkward just because, like, what if you don't? Well, like it was it? awkward for me because I admired him so greatly, but I also didn't want to see him. You know, I mean, it's well known he would have a joint in one hand and a bottle of whiskey in the other, and he would. As the evening went on, finally one of his people came over to me and says, I think if Bob were in better shape now, he probably wouldn't want you to be seeing the rest. I said, I agree with you completely. I'm out of here. But that was during his low period where he did films like Quintet and Perfect Couple and Health. Yes. But he started out doing, well, he Kansas City, and he did industrials mm -hmm. and promos and, and all sorts of weird stuff. He came to Hollywood. He did a very low-budget movie, completely off the radar, that had uh, Tom Laughlin of Billy Jack in it. Uh, he did a film called the, the James Dean Story. Not terribly good movies, to put it mildly. Then he went back to Kansas City and did other stuff. But one of those films brought him to Hitchcock's attention, so he did some Alfred Hitchcock present TV thing. So for about 10 years, he was doing episodic TV. Mm -hmm. You know, Whirly Birds and Sugarfoot, Bonanza, all this stuff. Very traditional stuff. Yeah, kind of and, straight down the middle. Yeah, you know, and he was one of the great innovators in American cinema, and yet he had a good 10 or 12 years of doing this stuff. And by the time he started directing features, he was, I think he directed MASH when he was in his uh, early, mid-40s. Mm -hmm. So even though he was part of that, you know, Spielberg, De Palma, Coppola, he was a good 15 years older than any right, of them. Right, right. So, you know, that cold day in the park was, a, well, no, his first feature was for a studio was, was a film called Countdown for Warners. It was an astronaut movie with James Caan and Robert Duvall. And he got fired by Jack Warner because he had the two of them speaking over each other in some scenes. And Warner is, what, what is this? You know, <laughs> they're talking over each other. Right. And so that was when Altman first became a little bit of who Altman right. was. But that he became was, like his hallmark eventually. Right. Yeah. But you would never, ever know that he, he, he made masterpieces like McCabe and Mrs. Miller or Thieves Like Us or Nashville or Long Goodbye mm -hmm. based on the first 20 years of his career. It's one thing I think that distinguishes film from some of the other arts. You can look at the early writings of, of Virginia Woolf or Mailer or Austin, you know, and, mm -hmm. and you can see glimmers of the real artist in those writings. Right. But in movies, for some reason, you know, can you draw a line between Dementia 13 and The Godfather? Easily. You no, know? no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I mean, there's like a million. So, so Altman. Or all those guys that came out of the Roger Corman world. Like, yeah. yeah. But got, I even, you know, when, when Boxcar Bertha came out, Scorsese's film, I was in college. So I, I hadn't seen any of his movies. Saw it in a, in, a, in a grindhouse on the second half of a double bill with 20 convicts and a woman in 42nd Street. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote about it for my college newspaper. And I said, this is like the best directed terrible movie I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. It's like incredibly well-directed, you know, a Corman knockoff of Bonnie and Clyde, but and everyone said, oh, you're just trying to make a name for yourself and discover someone, you know. So then when Mean Streets came out, I said, you see, you know. <laughs> but Altman, you know, MASH was a terrific film, very funny, very hip, very loose. But even there, you couldn't draw a line between that and, because when McCabe and Mrs. Miller came out a couple um, of years later in 72, yeah. I just thought, my God, I mean, if you can really do something like this in Hollywood, then it's not all corrupt. Sure. I mean, it was just unbelievable that he was able to pull that off. Although I do feel like, even though like maybe he kind of genre jumped, I do feel like you could look at MASH and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and see the same director behind the camera. Well, yeah, there's an iconic class. Even, even, even yeah. like Gingerbread Man, which I enjoyed, actually. But yeah, I mean, to that end, like he, he definitely had his stylistic devices and touches that would kind of tell you who was yeah, behind that camera. And, and, you know, the Nixon movie that he did, A Secret Honor, mm -hmm. it, it's just a staged play reading, but it's so cinematic 
He didn't really work from scripts in any traditional way, but at a certain point in his career, when it was at a low point, he became known for directing plays. Mm -hmm. So he did films, you know, Streamers, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Jean, Jimmy Dean. There were about six or seven movies that he did that were based on plays. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you thought of of all the directors to be doing that, Altman would be the least likely, you would think. Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean is not a very good play, which somehow became an extraordinary movie. Um, I'm not quite sure how he pulled that (laughs) off. Um, I guess he was almost like a visionary, but also, I mean, a bit of a Willy Wonka. He's always like kind of testing things and seeing what what could he get away with. uh, Yeah, he was very iconoclastic. He didn't, with very few exceptions, uh, after MASH, he he didn't really like working in the studios. And uh, his big comeback, quote unquote, was The Player. The Player in 92, was it? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. which was a terrific movie. Fabulous. But it's kind of like his love-hate letter to Hollywood. Yeah. Because... The paradox of that movie is that it's a great Hollywood movie about the inability to make a great movie in Hollywood. You know, I mean, he's <laughs> right. saying this is what the industry has become. Right. And yet it's a terrific movie. Amazingly, too, it's a good thriller. You know, yeah. it, it's it's great satire. It's funny. It's dark. But, yeah. but there's a thriller in there that really works. Yeah, it's a terrific film. But, you know, he... He never liked to do the same thing twice. He, he, I think I've seen every one of his movies even, but actors loved him, yeah, you know, sure. for obvious reasons, you know, because he would just say, let me see what you're thinking, you know, try anything you want. If I don't right. like it, we won't, we won't be in the movie. But he didn't say, you know, hit your mark here, do this, do that. He allowed them to be very much part of the creative process, mm-hmm. which if you have creative actors and you're a director who can really work that way is is the best. Mm-hmm. And is it true, like, actors didn't always know if they're being filmed or not? Right. If he, I mean, the way he used sound, he had so many different mics going that there'd be, like, I think 14 different that he could pick up on. People always complain, well, I can't hear what people are saying in his films. Occasionally, I think that was a valid criticism, but mostly he was trying to get at a kind of poetic naturalism or, or right, some right, way right, in right, which, right. you know, because it wasn't just a lot of gabble. And that's why he, he was very selective in what he made you hear and what he what you didn't hear. Yeah. I mean, when you saw his movies, you always felt like you were in for something. Yeah. You know, you weren't just going to see another product. Right. And, you know, I, I thought that it was it was heroic, the career that he had, basically, mm-hmm. because it was such a difficult thing for him to do. Yeah. And especially since, you know, like I said, he came out of episodic TV in the 60s. Right. And to be able to have that and then do the kind of work that he did after that mm-hmm. is some kind of heroic thing. That's an artist at its most pure, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. He just wanted to tell the stories and he would keep telling them his way and he somehow yeah. managed to keep making them. And, and I remember when, when he passed away too, it was like... You feel sad, of course, because loss of life, he's gone. And then you feel this weird selfish sadness of like, I don't get to see any more new films from him. But luckily for you people listening, Beauty of a Book Like Rainer and Film, it reminds you all these movies are out there. And back in the day, some of these were like impossible to get. And one of the great things about the technology we have is like, now a lot of these movies you can get, you know, yeah, yeah. you can find these things in the annals of the iTunes and Amazon libraries and they're out there. And yeah. the hope is with film criticism, it might bring you to things you otherwise wouldn't have seen and might make you appreciate things you might not have otherwise thought about or noticed. And I think that's a thing that, that Peter Rayner has done with his career for decades now. Peter is still doing this and still has new reviews available. Uh, what websites uh, should they go to to check out your material? Uh, well, csmonitor.com is mm-hmm. for the reviews, which can also be picked up on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes. 
and um, on the radio, uh, kpcc.org uh, mm-hmm. podcast, the shows that I do for a film called Film Week. Uh, but the book, I feel, is, you know, it does collect, I think, much of, of yeah, what there, I really... Yeah, there's a breadth to this book. Yeah. Well, uh, a massive thank you to Peter Rayner for talking with us, and thanks to all of you guys for listening. Remember to check us out, nyfa.edu, to learn about our school. And also, we have some of our Q&As, a whole... Actually, a lot of Q&As on our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by John Sherlock and Dan Mackler, with a special thanks going out to our staff and crew who made this possible. See you next time.